Okay, so welcome to this week's Zoom Parsha class. And uh, we're going to go through the Parsha briefly, um, you know, sprinkling it with some insights. And then we're going to focus on one topic, which I sent out as a title, uh, When a Kind Man Goes to War. Okay, so let's start with the beginning of the Torah portion. So the beginning of the Torah portion tells us that God appeared to Abraham. And it tells us where, the Elone Mamre, in the plains of Mamre. And it gives us no reason as to why God has appeared to Abraham. So we have Rashi, Rav Shlomo Yitzchaki, an 11th century French commentator that really serves as the foundation, the, I should say, the fundamental commentary um, which everyone leans upon to the Torah. And he tells us why. He tells us, God fulfilled the mitzvah of visiting the sick. And he also tells us that it was on the third day after the circumcision. And now from here, like I said, we'll go try to go ahead and sprinkle some of the teachings that uh, have been uh, taught to me. So we're going to understand a few concepts right here. One is more the mystical sense. One is more the practical halachic sense. Number one, we learn out from here that the greatest sages and, and holy people, the ones that have performed miracles, refrained from using any miraculous powers when it came to fulfilling a mitzvah, a commandment of God. And the reason is because the entire purpose of a commandment is to permeate uh, the physical, the natural sense of the person and his environment in order that we should transform the natural environment into an abode for God. And therefore, God, Abraham, I'm sorry, Abraham did not use any of his miraculous powers to remove the most natural pain of the surgery of circumcision. And thus, we now understand why God visited him on the third day, because we are taught that the third day after a surgery, from a medical point of view, is a very painful day. After that, it kind of tips the scale into the healing process. So God visits Abraham on the third day after his Brit Milah, and he's doing so in order to visit the sick, which is a clear commandment. Not only is it a clear commandment, which also falls under the category of the commandment of love your fellow as yourself, but it also, it also is a healing process. And our sages tell us that when you visit the sick, you take us just by the mere visiting on a spiritual level, also on an emotional level, an energetic level, you actually take a certain percentage of the sickness and the pain. And thus it's a big mitzvah. And thus our sages tell us that when the Torah commands us that we should cleave to God, and it's impossible to cleave to God, how can the finite being cleave to the infinite omnipotent one? And thus, one of the interpretations is you should cleave to God through doing what God does. And when it lists what it means to do what God does, it takes these most practical stories. It takes the story of God clothing Abraham, Adam and Eve, telling us just as God clothed the naked, so too should we clothe the naked. It talks about we should visit the sick just as God visited the sick, and so forth and so on. So, um, with this being said, I also want to take you to the halachic 
um, uh, teaching we learn out from this that we are taught that the first three days of a person falling ill, one should not go to visit them because those three days are difficult days and it would only be an imposition and uncomfortability upon the sick to have to have be you know available for guests. So that's the halachic twist that we have from, from this Rashi as well. Interesting enough, it just tells us that God appeared to Abraham and immediately the verse tells us that Abraham got too busy for God. And what does it tell us? That God, that, that Abraham saw three men standing from a distance and he ran towards them to fulfill the commandment of hachnasat orchim, of bringing in guests and feeding them. Now, our sages tell us that from this we learn out, and this is amazing, greater is the commandment of tending to guests than to receive the presence of God. And we learn this out because Abraham prioritized helping and receiving his guest over standing in the presence of God. So obviously the question is to be asked, we know this priority from Abraham, how he behaved. How did Abraham know this? He's standing in the presence of God. God just came to visit. And he tells God, please wait a moment. I have something to do. How did he know that that's the right thing to do? You know, seemingly that is the ultimate rebellion to the king of kings, lack of respect. And the Rebbe of blessed memory teaches us that literally what happens is that Abraham, knowing that God controls everything, and therefore knowing that all day there was no guest, and now when God appears to him, suddenly guests appear to him, that is God's way of telling him that you need to tend to guests first. Now, I also want to share with you, the verse says that God visited Abraham, he appeared to him, while Abraham was sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And our sages teach us that what's really going on here is that Abraham was sitting very pained that he was not able to do the primary commandment that he dedicated his entire life, which is to teach monotheism and the ways of God through loving kindness by hosting and feeding. And it goes even a step further that why does the verse tell us it was the heat of day? Because it was God that made it to be so hot so that people would not travel so that Abraham, in his third day after his surgery at the age of 99, would not be running around to tend the guests. However, when God appears to Abraham, and it is very clear that Abraham, instead of feeling relieved that in his present health situation, he didn't have to tend to guests, God sees that he is actually pained by this, and thus, the three angels that God sends to Abraham, as we're soon going to see, he sends to Abraham in the form of man, so that Abraham should see guests and thus be able to tend to them. Now, I'm just going to share with you from the teachings of the commentaries that at the beginning, when Abraham sees them, he does not know that they are angels. It is only when they start speaking to him and what they tell him that at this point, he's able to see through their human appearance and know that they're angels that are standing there. Number one. Number two. Twice in the Torah, we're going to find the Torah talking about angels as human beings. One in this story and uh, later on, when Jacob fights with the angel of Esau, it also talks about it in a human form. 
And obviously the question is, how do you fight with an angel? A. B, how do you feed an angel? And thus, interesting enough, while there are different commentaries, it is specifically the most mystical of commentaries, which is the Holy Zohar, which tells us that they truly embodied a human form, and therefore, A, they truly physically ate, and B, this angel truly had a physical wrestling match with Jacob. So interesting that it is the most mystical of all commentaries, which is able to embrace the most physical and practical approach to these mystical concepts in the Torah. Now, our sages tell us that we learn out something very important here. We learn out the teaching says, Azal Bekartasa, when you come to a neighborhood, you come to a city, you should conduct yourself according to their customs. Thus, when the angels came to this city called planet Earth, they actually behaved in the custom of the humans and they actually ate. Now, immediately, Abraham runs towards them and Abraham tells them that, that please do not pass through your servant's abode without allowing me to host you and to feed you. And at this point, Abraham is told by the angels, yes. Later on, in just a little bit, we're going to see that when Lot, the nephew of Abraham, does the same request, the angels don't right away say yes. And from here, we learn out a practical law, which is important to know. You can turn away, you can refuse someone who is not big, big in stature, but you do not refuse someone that is big in stature. And this, I want you to know, this is so practical. You know, in yeshiva, we knew that if one of the boys came over to us and said, listen, why don't you go be cantor today? And most of us didn't want that. Uh, we would just say, no, 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 no. But the minute anyone from the staff would be suggested, they wouldn't be commanding. You don't say no to a man of great stature. And that's the way we behave. So that we also learn out from here. Also, I want to take this moment to share with you who these three angels were. So the commentaries actually lined them up that the biggest of the angels was in the center and then there was to the left and to the right and therefore you'll see that there is a singular tone in the angel talking to Abraham because Abraham directed his words to the leader of the group and thus he was the one that answered now who are these angels the angels are the leader of the group was the angel Michael, Michael, which is the angel of kindness. And then to his left was the second one in stature, which was the angel of Gabriel, the angel of justice. And to his right was the angel of healing, Malach Raphael Raphael. Now, why do we have these three angels? And the answer is because each one had a specific job of a total different category. And I'll soon explain why I said that. Angel number one, Michael, was here to give the, uh, the tidings and promise of kindness. He's the one that tells Abraham that you are going to have a child in exactly one year. And we learn out from the verses, from what happened, that this was actually Passover. And our sages tell us that Isaac was born one year later so the birthday of Isaac is actually on Passover. Now, the second angel, Gabriel, the angel of justice, had but one job. As we're soon going to see, he was going to mete out justice upon the five cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, and their satellite cities. 
And then the angel of Raphael, actually the healing angel, actually had two jobs. Number one, to help heal um, uh, um, uh, uh, Abraham from the circumcision, and B, to save Lot's life. So now the question is that if we only have one mission per angel, why did Raphael have two missions to understand that? Let us understand what is the greatness of the human soul over the angel, which is why, parenthetically speaking, I hear a lot of times people talking to the children, like, you know, after, let's say, a grandmother or grandfather passes away, they talk about, oh, grandma is now an angel. Absolutely not. The soul of mankind is far superior than the angels. And thus to refer and say that a human soul became an angel is actually a degradation and not a step up of honor and respect. Why so? Because an angel is stuck in only its form of emanation from which it was created. In other words, the angel Michael, the angel of kindness, is incapable of serving as a messenger of God to mete out justice. It is not within his spiritual um, psyche, and he cannot do that, even when that is the appropriate thing to do in this moment. The angel of Gabriel cannot mete out a act as a messenger of God of kindness because his entire psyche and infrastructure is built upon the emanation of strength, justice, strictness. And the same with Raphael, the angel Raphael can only do an act of healing. Now he can do many infinite amounts of acts of healing, which is why he had two missions because both missions were of the healing nature, healing Abraham, saving Lot. Now, on another note, I want to share with you another teaching which comes from the great Magid of Mazrich, Rabdov Ver of Mazrich, and he teaches that with every single doctor comes an angel from the, um, what should I refer to them, uh, the, the, uh, the groups is another word I'm looking for, the troops, the troops of Michael, of Angel Raphael. And he says that the greater the doctor, the greater the angel. And he says the doctor of the generation is actually accompanied by the Angel Raphael himself. And therefore the Magid talks about how before the doctor even begins to apply any of the healings, the fact that the patient is seen by a doctor already brings about healing because with the doctor is the presence of a healing angel. Um, and therefore, I want to just emphasize that in Judaism, it is the actual absolute obligation of anyone who is, spirit, who is experiencing any medical issues to not say, no, 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 I believe in God, but no, to use the messengers of God that God commands us to use and makes available to us. And we learn it out from a verse in the Torah which says, heal, he shall heal, um, uh, that, that we are obligated to go to doctors and to actually listen to doctors. Now, the Rebbe himself has given many times the answer and said that this is his public opinion, that whenever we are dealing with a medical issue, we should always have a second opinion. And when the two opinions argue, to find a third opinion. And the Rebbe says the opinions of doctors, and he adds on an interesting word, Yedidim. It should be a doctor who is a friend and thus cares about you. Okay, moving right along with the story. So, Malach Michael, the angel Michael, goes ahead and tells Abraham, you are going to have a child. Now, Sarah is behind the door listening. She hears this, 
and she's in disbelief. And she says, really? Abraham is old. My husband is old. And I stopped having my menstrual cycle. Um, how exactly am I going to have a kid? And she laughs. And immediately God tells Abraham, he interrupts the conversation, tells Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Does she not believe that I can do such a thing? Now, I want to just share with you the importance of one verse here. When God repeats what Sarah said to herself, to Abraham, God omits part of what she said. God only says that Sarah said about herself that she is old. God does not tell Abraham that his wife referred to him as old, which now teaches us how important it is that even when we need to talk about things that other people did for the sole reason of helping to amend the situation, how careful we have to be not to say anything that would stir up unnecessary negative feelings. Important. Now, with that being said, Abraham immediately turns to Sarah and says, why? Why did you laugh? Why? And immediately Sarah denies it because she was afraid. And Abraham says, no, you did laugh. Now, I'm going to share with you that every single year when I learn these verses, these two, three verses, I am completely bothered by it. Number one, not everything that happened to our forefathers, our patriarchs and matriarchs are told in the Torah. Many of it is given over as oral tradition, and some of it isn't given over at all. If you read the three Torah portions that talk about Abraham's life, the two primary Torah portions that talk about Abraham's life, you don't have over there 175 years of experiences. So obviously everything that we're taught, especially that's written in the written Torah and not just given over orally, is there specifically to give us a lesson of what of what lesson, of what positive experience would it be for a child to learn that Sarah denied what happened, A, and that B, she did it because she was afraid? What's going on here? Why are we being taught this story? And mind you, in just a couple of pages, in the same Torah portion, God tells Abraham, Listen to what Sarah tells you. And our sages tell us that God told Abraham that Sarah is a greater prophetess than you are a prophet. Listen to her words. So we're speaking here of a total righteous matriarch in which we look at every single behavior as a lesson to us. What is going on here then with this story? Briefly, I'm going to share with you that the commentaries such as Nachmanites or Chaim Benatar, known as the Orachayim, they deal with this issue. And they talk about the fact being that Avraham realized that these three humans were actually angels, and thus this was the words of God. Sarah was not given that insight, and she thought, yeah, okay, a bunch of uh, nice, nice men who are, who are very filled with gratitude and appreciative of being hosted, sees that there's no kids. So, you know, they give a bracha. Oh, may you have a child. She didn't think this was the word of God. She thought this was the, the word of, of, of kind-hearted and probably, parenthetically speaking, foolish people to think that they can give a blessing to a 99-year-old and to a 90-year-old to have a child. So therefore, she laughed. Okay, nice. Thank you for the blessing. Now, if that be the case, then why is God making this like this, this is a, her doubting God? And thus, what God was telling Abraham was, even if it did come from just good, good-natured, simple-minded people giving you a blessing, they're not the ones to say if it's going to happen or not. They're giving you a blessing that God should do it. 
So why didn't you believe that God can make this blessing happen? That's how some of the commentaries um, explain it. What I do not have an answer is that how did Sarah deny it rather and because she was afraid of her husband, who was the epitome of kindness. So that kind of, I still don't fully wrap my head around it. Why, why would she deny it and not just say, oh, oh I, I, you know, I, I just heard this and I just thought it was kind-hearted uh, simpletons, you know. Um, uh, and, and why does he deny it and why she deny it? And Abraham says, no, this, this is the truth. You did do it. I will tell you that from the commentaries I quoted to you just now, they also say that Sarah did not lie, God forbid, but she was being evasive to it um, rather than just, uh, you know, womaning up to it. Uh, and that's why Abram said, no, this is the plain truth. They said it, you, you didn't believe it, and you're denying it. Okay, with that being said, let's move along. The next thing that happens is God, the, the angels um, are now leaving Abraham's tent and they're heading to the next mission. Now you're going to see, by the way, that when it comes to Lot, we're only talking about two angels because obviously angel Michael, Michael returns to heaven, his job is done. Gabriel and Raphael, their jobs are not done. So two angels head down to Sodom. And at this point, um, God says, how can I not reveal to Abraham what I plan to do? And one of the interpretations is because also these lands will belong to Abraham. I promised it to him. And therefore, how can I do it? Another teaching is that I, Abraham was the leader of the generation on a spiritual level. And thus he carries the responsibility and the relationship with each and every human being of his generation. And thus God says, how can I do this um, without telling him? Um, and therefore, God reveals to him. Now, God says, very interesting, verse 21. God tells Abraham that the shouts, the screams, obviously, of pain from Sodom and Amorah, because of how many is their sins, is very heavy. And the next verse Therefore, I will go down and see if as the screams reaching me, it is. And if it is, I will destroy them. And if not, I will know how to handle it. Okay, let's talk about this. Number one, God doesn't have to come down to earth to see. Obviously, God sees from heaven. So from here, we learn out that there's a teaching to the judges you must go and see and inquire. Now, if I may, parenthetically speaking, and yet very not parenthetically speaking, I want to share this teaching to each and every one of us. Do not forward a post, an accusatory, discriminating post, if you have not Erda no the era inquired. There are ways today which to inquire. There's a website that's dedicated just to inquire. And when in doubt, my dear friends, do not repost. Erda no the era. Before you take action, do not be part of the problem. Always be part of the solution. And when in doubt, refrain. So yes. Reposting that which is verified is part of the solution very often, if there's a reason to do it. But to God forbid, just repost being part of lies, being part of gaslighting, being part of all the problems we are going through with this new generation of vast information going th at the speed of light through our system, our internet, is not okay. We need to do what God did. Let's step down and see and inquire and confirm. Um, and, and yes, this, this horrific um, temptation of 
not having the time, I got to do it right now. We don't need to do it right now. So we can wait and see if we have the time. And by the way, if we all took this advice from God and we don't have time to look into everything, we'd be, as they say in Yiddish, hacking a chinik a lot less. Literally, that means knocking a tea kettle. And what that means is just being part of the foolishness that, that you know, the lies and everything. Okay, getting off my soapbox, getting back to my pulpit. So, the, the, uh, again, it tells us that the uh, angels are walking towards Sodom. And the sages tell us why are they walking towards Sodom? Because why is he telling this us, to us again? Because they were purposely working, walking slow, whatever that means for angels, in order that Abraham should have time to do what he's about to do. Now, what does Abraham do? Abraham turns to God and starts praying, arguing, discussing not to do that. Do not wipe out five cities of human beings, animals, all of your creation. And what is his approach? His approach is that maybe amongst the five cities, there are 50 righteous people, which would leave for a minion, a quorum, for each city of righteous people, decent people, and thus in their merit, you should protect the entire city. And God says, yes. And then he goes down to 45. And why does he go down to 45? The answer is very simple. That would leave nine. And then he's asking God, you the righteous one, will you be the 10th man, so to speak, to complete the quorum. Now, why doesn't he go any less than nine per city? Very simple. In Noah's ark, how many righteous people were there? Noah, his wife, his three sons, and his three wives. So he already knows that eight righteous people with including God into the quorum, which would make nine, would not be enough. You do need a quorum of 10 people. And thus, there is this ancient tradition which carries out through all communities that we set aside 10 people to dedicate their life to Torah study, decency, and goodness and kindness. And they become what is called Niture Karta. Now, that name today is very controversial because there's a certain group in Jerusalem that took that name with very radical um, views. However, you should know that they did not make up that name. That name actually comes from our sages. And what it means is Niture, the guardians, Karta of the city. So he keeps on going down. How about 30, how 40, 30, 20, 10? And obviously he's saying, well, if I can't save all the cities, will you at least save one city if there's 10, two cities if there's 20? And then what happens is, at that point, he can't go any lower. Uh, so he knows that, like I told you from the story of Noah, that it won't work to go any lower. So at that point, he remains silent. And at that point, our sages say, the defense attorney was silent, the judge ruled, and the prosecutor moved forward. And that's when the next thing we learn is that the angels arrive to, um, uh, to Lot. And over here, like I told you, in verse chapter 9, verse 1, it says clearly that there was two, not three. Okay. Lot sees them. Lot goes ahead and starts requesting of them, please be my guest. Now, obviously, Lot doing this was the remnants of the education he received by Abraham. So what was Sodom and Gomorrah's biggest sin. So our sages tell us that the biggest sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was that they were actually the antithesis, the, uh, was the antagonist of Avraham, which makes it so much more powerful that Avraham is fighting for their, for their uh, salvation. Avraham was all about human kindness. 
the biggest sin of Sodom and Amora was simply that they knew that they lived in what the verse says was as blessed as the garden of God. They did not want, okay, I'm not saying this on a political note, so please do not accuse me of that. They did not want immigration. They did not want people to say, oh, this is a nice place. We should settle here. They did not want to share their blessings. And thus they were extremely nasty and cruel to any passerbys so that they would not return. They went so far as having the death penalty for anyone who was found to do any act of kindness towards tourists and guests. And thus Lot actually is, is actually endangering himself, telling the angels, please sneak your way to my house. And that's why I use the word suruna, please turn. What do you mean turn? Come to my house. No, take back alleys and come to my house. And in the house over there, we have the story of they reveal to Lot why they came and they're going to turn over Sodom and they're going to, and, and one angel is going to save him um, in the honor of Abraham. And all of a sudden, Sodom spends the whole night in defense of the people he lives amongst. And then it says that word got out that the angels, that, that Lot brought guests into his house and the entire city come barging on Lot. Now, parenthetically speaking, because it's a medrash, I wanted to share with you what happened. How did everyone find out? You know, he, he, he snuck them into the house and clearly no one saw. So we're taught, and this is going to explain in a moment, one of the reasons why Saddam's wife turned into a pillar of salt. Because Lot's wife, who was already completely, completely perversed by her environment, was all of a sudden going to the neighbors asking, Oh, would you happen to have salt? My husband brought home guests, getting out the word purposely. And that's how people found out. She spoke to the neighbor wives. The wives told their husbands. Everyone gets together, and they're barging on attacking um, Lot. And Lot stands up to protect his guests, and he says, please don't. Um, the next line in the story I will share with you, I don't know how to stomach. He says, here you can have my two virgin daughters to do as you please. Just don't harm the guest. I don't know where that came from. I highly doubt that that would have come from the teachings that he learned from Abraham. But be it as it may, he goes ahead and he tells them that they move forward to attack him. The angels smite the people with blindness so they shouldn't be able to see where Lot is and how to get into the door. They pull Lot into the house, slam the door, and they ask him, who else do you have here? Simply speaking, do you have, you know, you have two married daughters and their husbands. Uh, you have two um, betrothed grooms to your two single daughters. Do you want to, you know, go get them? Another teaching is they were actually saying, oh, really? Who else do you have here? You were sitting all night telling us how fine these people are. We see how fine they are. Anyway, to make the long story short, his two married daughters and their husbands laugh at him. The two uh, betrothed grooms laugh at him. And thus, he's left to go ahead and just save his wife and his two daughters. And angel Gabriel tells him, stop wasting time. I have a job to do, and I can't do it until you're off this continent, this, this place, not continent. And therefore, they tell him, go to Abraham and stay there. Lot immediately says, please, don't make me go to Abraham. And our sages say, why? Because when I live amongst the perverse, I am found to be decent. But when I live in, in relativity to Abraham, I'll be found in heaven to be completely perverse. Let me go to a little city, um, which was only a city that was only uh, 51 years old. Let me stay there and let me be safe there, which will explain the next story that happens. But anyway, let's first finish this story. So Lot uh, goes ahead and the angel tells him, whatever you do, do not look back. 
and the teaching here is why do not look back because the power of sight connection is precisely that a connection now if Lot and his wife and his daughters on their own merit would have been able to be saved and disconnected so then they don't have to worry about looking back however being that they had no merit of their own they actually deserve to be part of this and this destruction and it's only because of Abraham that they're being saved so the angel is saying be careful that you don't look back pentidbak unless it sticks to you what's happening in in uh, Sodom and therefore when the wife does look back and we're and we're taught that she looked back simply to see with hope maybe the two other daughters changed their mind and are following but the minute she looked back she turned into a pillar of salt i told you one reason why she turned into salt because that's how she sinned against these angels and the second reason is because the verse says that sulfur and salt rained down from the heaven i shared with you that by looking back she connected herself with that to which she was on in her own right um susceptible to thus she turned into salt connected to the salt that was raining down from heaven okay and now moving right along um so abraham wakes up in the morning uh, bright and early runs out to see um, what is going on in Sodom and when he sees this huge pillar of smoke he understands that there wasn't even nine righteous people in those cities and therefore the destruction was brought upon them brought upon them now next story I told you that Lot begged not to have to go to Abraham but to be in the smallest of the cities. All the people over there died. So at this point, he's living in some cave with his two daughters who are convinced that it's another story like Noah. And thus there are no humans alive. Thus the entire human race will be wiped out. They don't have husbands from which to produce a continuity to the human race. Thus, they did not have evil ancestral intentions. They actually had the intentions that just like Cain and Abel, uh, not Abel, Abel was murdered, but Cain uh, was able to marry his own sister, twin sister, in order to be able to bring continu continuity to the human race. They felt that being that God put them in a situation where the only male was their father, they would have a child from their father. However, they didn't feel like discussing this with their father. So instead, they just get him drunk one night. The older daughter um, has a relationship with him. She gets pregnant. The next night, she tells the younger daughter, you do the same. And from this comes the two great nations, Moab and Ammon. Moab comes from the word Me'aba, from my father. Ammon, is, uh, she was more modest, and she named him Ammon, meaning my nation, Ammoni. Now, why did I say there were two great nations? Because I, shouldn't, I just want to say that from them came two amazing converts, Ruth the Moabite. Now, I want to share with you, who am I to say which convert is great and which is not great? They're all great. The reason I use the word great is because from this Moabite comes along Ruth. Ruth ends up marrying Boaz. And from then comes King David, and from King David comes King Solomon, and from King Solomon will come the Mashiach, the Messiah, and thus we understand the greatness of what happened here. Okay, moving right along to the next story. Abraham moves away, and he moves into the territory of King Abimelech. Just to let you know, Pharaoh and Abimelech are not names, they're titles, like president, Pharaoh, king, Abimelech. Thus you'll find that there's a Pharaoh that Abraham dealt with, there's a Pharaoh that Joseph dealt with, there's a Pharaoh that Moses dealt with, and the same thing with Abimelech, there's an Abimelech that Abraham dealt with, and then there's an Abimelech that Yitzchak dealt with. And it's, the same, it's not the same name, it's the same title, the same position of leadership. And uh, he goes ahead and he speaks to uh, Abraham. And, uh, and he, again, 
when Abraham moves in to his territory, he once again with Sarai says, please say you're my sister, not my wife, so they won't kill me in order to bring the most beautiful woman to the king. And again, the king ends up taking Sarai as Sarah, and God again stops him from, from violating Sarah. And by the end of the verse, you'll see that um, he knew that this was the reason um, that there was an affliction because it says clearly the affliction in verse 18 was that the wombs of every living creature um, became blocked. So women weren't able to give birth. Lahabdal um, uh, um, animals were not able to give birth. So he understood something is going on here. And the next thing God tells him that she is the wife, do not touch, do not touch her. And uh, don't worry, Abram is a prophet. He will know that she was not violated and he will pray for you. And so it was. And he again tells Abram exactly like Paro said, said to Abram, why would you do this? And he had got, and Abram answers, because there's no fear of God here. So therefore I had to protect myself. And Abimelech, unlike Pharaoh, Pharaoh tells Abram, go, don't stay here. While, Avra, while Abimelech says, stay here. And the reason is because Pharaoh knew it was not within his power to protect um, of, of Sarai and Abraham from the perversity that the people had. While Abimelech knew his people, he knew that they weren't that perverse. And if he tells them no one touch her, they won't touch her. Okay, right after this, God fulfills his promise. And when Abraham is 100 years old and, and Sarah is 90 years old, they give birth to um, Isaac. And then um, uh, what happens is that um, we're going to learn that uh, Abraham, uh, that the people actually ridiculed and said, yeah, right, yeah, right. All these years, one night with Abimelech, and all of a sudden she's pregnant. Obviously, there was a relationship there, and obviously that's why she got pregnant, and they did not believe. So two things happened at the time. Number one, God created a miracle that Sarah was able to nurse all the children there to prove that this was not an adopted child brought into the house, but this is hers. And the second thing is that God made that Isaac should be identical, identical to Abraham so that everyone can see it's Abraham's voice, Abraham's son. And all of a sudden, the next story we see is that all of a sudden, Sarah sees that Ishmael, um, Hagar's um, son, is being very dangerous with, uh, with Isaac. He's trying to make things look as, you know, as, oh, no, no, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I'm just playing around. But he actually endangered again and again young Isaac's life, hoping to, uh, you know, kill the competition, as they say. And uh, what happens is that Sarah sees this, and Sarah tells Abraham, you need to send away that boy. And uh, Abraham feels terrible about it because it's his son. And God tells him, you need to send him away. Isaac will be your inheritance. And don't worry, um, so, um, uh, Yishmael will be safe. And actually a miracle happens because Yishmael was very sick. And uh, he was, uh, because he was sick, he drank up all the water um, that was given to him for the journey. And thus he was laying there dehydrated in the desert um, to die. And all of a sudden an angel appears and tells Hagar, don't worry, your child will not die. He will be a great nation. And a miracle happens. She, he opens up Hagar's eyes, and Hagar sees that there is a brook there. Now, I just want to give you my own thought about this, moving along quickly. Um, I just want to give you my own thought about this, that um, very interesting, very, very interesting. It doesn't say that God created a brook. It says, and God opened her eyes, and she saw it is my understanding from this verse that most often when things are not going right for us and channels and openings and opportunities don't, don't seem to be available, it's because until we align ourselves with our higher power, it's there, but our eyes are blind to see it. It's only when we align ourselves with God that all of a sudden God opens up our eyes to see what truly lies within us. It was there all the time. What truly lies around us, it was there all the time. And now we have opened ourselves up 
to be able to connect and make use of it. Okay, after that, Abimelech makes a peace treaty. He sees that Abraham is blessed. He makes a peace treaty with Abraham. And you're going to find this story again with Isaac, that for some reason, the people of Abimelech, um, his nation, in pure jealousy of the success and wealth of Abraham and the later Isaac, every time they dig wells from which to be able to give water to their livestock, the Abimelech's people are the plishtim, are, are stuffing it up and, and, and ruining it. And thus Abraham then makes with him a covenant and says, you know, this is what your people are doing. And uh, he goes ahead and he says, well, I didn't know. Well, now you know. And he ends the problem. And then they have the well on which they do it, and they call it Be'er Shava. Now, I want, and that, which is called the well of the oath. I just want to be clear. Today, it is not called, the city is not called Be'er Shava, which means of an oath, the, the well of an oath, but rather it's called Be'er Sheva. Sheva means seven. And I just want to share with you that you will see why, because when Isaac has to go through the same thing, he changes the name from Be'er Shava to Be'er Sheva. Okay, and then there's the last story, which is probably the most interesting story, which is the story I'm going to spend the least time on, which is the story of God telling Abraham to put um, uh, Isaac onto the altar. So, of course... God never tells Abraham to sacrifice. He just says to bring him up upon the altar. It is Abraham's understanding, which God wanted him to understand, that he is to bring him as a sacrifice, and that was the ultimate test. And then um, when he passed the test, God stops him and says, don't do it. God sends an angel to stop him and says, don't do it. It was just a test, and now I know that you are, um, you are truly a God-fearing and God-loving person, and therefore it will now be clear to the nations why I favor you. Now, with this being said, I want to just have two quick teachings before we spend a couple of minutes. It's getting late. It was a long, big-filled portion. Um, but uh, I want to just share two important teachings. Number one, this is not my teaching. This is a teaching from a great Rebbe. And he said like this. He said, interesting that when... When it comes to ordering God, uh, ordering Abraham to bring um, Isaac as a, as, an, as a sacrifice upon the altar, so it was God himself that tells Abraham. When it comes to stopping Abraham, all of a sudden the verse says God sent an angel. God could have himself told him. Why did God have to send an angel? And that great Rebbe, I think it was the... Um, the uh, Kutzker, I'm not sure. He said like the Holy Kutzker Rebbe. He said like this. He said, it's only to teach us a lesson. If you believe that God is sending you to harm a person, you must hear it from God himself. But even if God told you to harm a person, and then later it's only an angel, a messenger that tells you stop, that's enough for you to stop and not harm another person. Really important, really important lesson in, in a world filled with people that are bent on holy wars and hurting people in the name of God. Unless you heard directly from God, do not harm any person. Okay, with that being said, um, one more teaching, and, and this is, I'm going to be quick with this, it's mathematical. So you'll see all of a sudden in verse 19, that when Abraham returns from Mount Moriah, it doesn't say, and they returned, meaning Abraham and Isaac, but it says only by Yoshev Avraham, verse 19. Avraham returned. Where's Isaac? By the way, just to let you know, Isaac is 37 years old at this time. Uh, so it isn't just the greatness of Abraham, it's the greatness of Isaac as well. At 37 years old, he could have very well outrun his 137-year-old father and said, listen, I don't know what visions you're having, but I'm out of here. And he didn't. Uh, so why do we talk about it only as the merit of, not only, but primarily as the merit of Abraham? Very interesting, very interesting answer of our sages. Because Isaac was only asked to deal with a one-time sacrifice. 
and then he would be in paradise. Avram was asked to wake up every morning and face what he did. That's the greater challenge. Okay, but let's get back to the mathematical thing. So Abraham returns without Isaac. Where is Isaac? Our commentaries tell us that Isaac went up to heaven for two years and studied there in paradise. And from this, we will understand a mathematical problem and also a metaphorical problem. When Jacob, when Jacob comes with that coat, that Adam brought from the Garden of Eden, went to, down to the king Nimrod. And when Asaph killed Nimrod, he stole that coat. And he gave it to his mother, Rebekah, to watch. And Rebekah gives it to, Adam, to Jacob when Jacob's going to go and fool his father uh, to steal the blessings from Asaph. And all of a sudden, Isaac literally says in the verse, Come close to me. I smell the fragrance of the Garden of God. So why he smelled the fragrance of the garden of God, we now know. Because Isaac was wearing the coat which Adam brought from the garden of God when he was kicked out of the garden. However, how would Isaac know what that garden smells like? The sage is connected to the fact that only Abraham came back from Mount Moriah, not Isaac, because Isaac went into um, the garden of Eden two years to study. Now, how does this help us? I'll tell you how. Let's do the mathematics. Number one, Abraham had Isaac at the age of 100. Isaac had his twins at the age of 60. Abraham died at the age of 175, which, which thus tells us the mathematics that Jacob and Esau were 15 years old when Abraham died, which presents a problem. Because if you remember last week in the covenant um, of the pieces that God made with Abraham, he says that you will die in a good old age. If you remember, I told you that the sages say you will not see Esau in his evilness. Now, how do our sages say that? Because they say that Esau was 13 years old when Abraham died. Under 13, a man, a man is called, a boy is called a child. Thus, Abraham would say, listen, he's just a wild child. He'll, be, he'll grow up. But if we say that he's 15, that becomes a problem. How did the sages say he's 13? Thus, some sages say that once Isaac entered into the Garden of Eden, the aging process of the physical body did not continue. And thus, according to that, when Isaac was, one, was 60, Abraham was 162. So when he has his kids at the age of 175 of Abraham, they were only 13. An interesting opinion brought, brought down in a book called Seder Hadoiris, The Order of Generations. Okay, it's really running late. It's 9.34, so I'm going to be very brief with what I wanted to share with you. And that is when a kind man goes to war. The verse says, when, when Abraham turns to fight for the salvation of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, so it says over there, Vayigash Avraham. Simply, that word Vayigash Avraham means, and Abraham approached. The definition of the word Vayigash is approach. Now Rashi says, what does this mean he approached? And Rashi brings, brings uh, from sources of the ver different ver verses he relies on. He simply says that we find the word approach by Yigash when it comes to prayer. We find it when it comes to war, being hard. And we find it when it comes to kindness. Now, is that the third one? One second, let me just make sure. By Yigash. Um, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, so the word is not kindness. The word is actually to to soothe, lefayas, to to calm down. Okay. Now the question is, why does Rashi do that? Deeper than that, why does Rashi say anything? Rashi is always giving his commentary as a profession. 
He was a cheder teacher. He taught young children Chumash, and he only comments on that which he has to comment. Keep it simple. And therefore, why does he have to comment at all? We already know what the word by Yigash means. By Yigash means approached. So therefore, we have the answer that Rashi is forced to say something because his, the verse actually tells us that when it says, and I read to you in verse 22, and Avram was still standing before God, Meaning that Rashi tells us what he means he's standing before God. He left God, remember? God was at the door of his gateway, and he le- of his tent, and he left God to go treat his three guests. Thus we're taught that God came to him and, and stood where he was standing as he was seeing off the angels. And that's when God started talking to him. But one second, according to that, we have a problem. What does it mean that Abram approached God? if we just said that God was standing right next to him. Thus, we need to say that approach does not mean he physically approached. It's talking about a mental state of mind. And thus, we have to understand what does it mean he approached in a state of mind. Thus, Rashi teaches us that he entered into a state of mind that I will speak harshly, I will pray, and I will try to soothe God's anger. Now, what does it mean I'm going to speak harshly to God? <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? And the truth is, you find it. He, he, he gets very iffy. Lecha. It, is, it is unbefitting of you to do something in which you will destroy and kill the righteous together with the wicked. Where is your justice? Whoa, 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 Avram, have you forgotten who you're talking to? So he did enter into that. And here is, again, the deep lesson. When it comes to our own suffering, most often we're to actually, as my Maimonides says, we're to search our actions because suffering in any kind is a communication from God. And thus, immediately, we are to humbly accept. Of course, we have to try to change it. And the suffering. There's no, there's no glory, no spiritual glory in Judaism in suffering. But if you are going through suffering, you do have to look into yourself and justify God. Saying, no, God is right because I need to polish up this and this part of my act. But when it comes to an other, we should never say, ah, they deserve it. It's about time, God, that you opened up your eyes and, and are meeting out evil from this world. That's not what we do. We immediately go into, into ju- defending, defending the person who's suffering. We argue with God. We argue with God, how can you not fall upon your compassion and justice if there is this that should protect him or her? Thus, the kindness of Abraham actually drives him into what seems to be harsh for a man of kindness in going war, going to war with God, so to speak, fighting with God. How can you do this? And now I want to share with you another mystical teaching. And with this, we'll close it up. We are taught in Kabbalah and Hasidus that when God says, Erda no era, let me go down and see. Let me first, before we get mystical, let me share with you what Rashi tells the five-year-old boy who's learning this verse. Why is God going down? First of all, the wording of this verse is hard to understand. If I'm going to go see if it's true, the shouting of pain and, and, and suffering that I heard, and... Then he says, and then I will destroy, and if not, I will know. What, what does that mean? So Rashi says, obviously God knew the story was true. God knew that the screaming and suffering was real. And it was, it was what happened. So what's he going down to see? So Rashi says, I'm going to see if even though they did this horrid things, whether they're changing their ways. And if they're changing their ways, I will not destroy them. I will punish them, but I will not destroy them. 
However, if they're not changing their ways and they're continuing in the ways that have reached me, the shouts and pain of suffering, then I will annihilate them. So that means over here that Abraham is hearing from God that God is looking for compassion. God is not looking to just mete out justice. And even if they did do, which he knew they did, the evil things, the cruel things that they did, God is still approaching with compassion. Maybe they're having a change of mind. Maybe that was the straw that broke the camel's back of their denial, and they now see, guys, we're going too far with this. Thus, Abraham hearing from God that he's looking for compassion, Abraham understands that God is telling him, fight with me. Fight against my attribute of strictness and justice and help my attribute of compassion manifest itself. And thus, Abraham is going to war with God. By the way, in closing, we find the exact same thing by the golden calf. God tells Moses these words, leave me alone and I will destroy them. And Moses says to himself, leave me alone. That means I have a choice of not leaving him alone. And then he won't be able to destroy them. So Moses understood God was telling him, fight with me now. So if there is a time to argue with God, it's to argue when we see any form of suffering and to defend to defend the person who's suffering, even if we may say, oh, no, 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 he, you know, you sleep in the bed that you make. No, 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 that's not our job. After we fight with God to, to heal him from his suffering, then we'll go to that person and try to help them find their way back to, to honesty and decency. But the first thing is, argue with God when you see suffering. Never be happy in someone else's suffering and never justify someone else's suffering. And in closing, the previous Rebbe, in the time of World War II and the Holocaust, he was talking to another rabbi, and he was bemoaning bitterly, how can God do this? How can God do this? And this other rabbi took it upon himself to defend God. Well, you know, there was assimilation, and there was a secularization, and they were walking away from Torah mitzvahs, and the previous Rebbe gave him a look and said, God doesn't need you to be his defense lawyer. Our job is to be the defense lawyers of humans, of suffering humans, not of God. God will work itself out. God doesn't need us as his defense lawyers. He needs us to fight with his attribute of justice to continuously evoke compassion. And that's it, my friends. Done.